Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 235. Okay, so I've been stretching this project out as much as I can. Yeah, this is like this is like plastic deformation of project all the way to the breaking point. I was thinking about Stretch Armstrong, but okay. Same thing. Yeah. Same material, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Um, so the cat feeder unreminder. Um, I actually had some time and I sat down and, and started actually picking parts and going through kind of what I want to do now. So again, this is the like a timer uh, so that you are reminded to not feed the cats because cats will meow and want to be fed all the time. Um, and so you don't want your cat to get too fat, especially in a household that has multiple people that will just feed cats to get the cat to shut up. Um, actually, since I came up with this idea, my cat has gained half a pound. <laughs> so this is definitely a problem. <laughs> the severity of needing to complete this project is, is growing. Is growing as the days go on. Um, so the idea is it will have a timer in it and then every, you know, has an LED on it and then every like 18 hours it lets you know by an LED that hey it's okay to feed the cat you feed the cat you press the button on it the timer resets and then um, that way no one feeds the cat um, multiple times in a day at least that's the idea you know I, I, I'm gonna pause you real quick uh, Parker and I talked about this oh gosh we've talked about this almost every week now for like and, two uh, months <laughs> Well, no, 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 like, no, what, what I'm about to say is what we've talked about. Okay. Um, in terms of, in terms of this podcast and in terms of like the projects that we talk about on this podcast, uh, we're not like trying to curate every little thing that we talk about. Most of the time we're talking about things that just interest us at the moment or something that we're doing in our own time. But we also like do projects and then we talk about like, Hey, did people like this? Did, did like, were people talking about this or were they not talking about it at all? Uh, you know, and we, we do a little bit of feedback and for some reason, this project has gained like so much traction and people are talking about it all the time on our Slack channel. And it's like, why? But cool. Like, okay. Like what about this one that is like so much more unique than all the other things? I think because done? we all share, <laughs> The shared experience of a cat bugging the shit out of you for food. <laughs> Everyone wants to have their hands in this one. No, I mean, I love it. I, I love how random it is. And I love that, like, this is the project that has been, like, has got people fired up. And, like, and it's, they're engaging in the cat feeder on reminder. <laughs> okay, so, so the idea with this project, too, is I want to do something that I can learn from because... Um, I could easily just make a microcontroller with an RTC and then slap a lithium battery on it or like a AA battery and yeah, then call it good. Yeah, but where would the fun be in that? Yeah, where would be, I, I, we did that with the Macro Watch years ago. It's right. It basically retooled the Macro Watch, um, which is a a binary uh, PCB based watch that uh, that uh, Steve and I worked on. It was like our first project at, at Macrofab way way long ago. The and also, is that not like sort of the MO of 99% of the digital projects? They're just reconfigurations of something you've already done. Yes. So this was trying to do something I've never done before. And now the Mac watch was low power, but it was a microcontroller. So I'm like, okay, 
we we talked about using a microcontroller a couple weeks ago or last week, but I went back to okay, no microcontroller. Ooh, okay. I, I'm curious because I haven't heard about this. So the biggest thing is I wanted it to last a long time, and and so either it was battery powered or whatever, it needs to last for at least a year or two. Um, so the biggest thing was okay, it has to have indicators to let you know to feed the cat and also know it's working. Um, and I we talked about different ways of indication last week, like e-ink displays. Um, I actually went through all my spare parts. I did not find an e-ink display. Hmm. Um, so I decided not to use one because I didn't want to spend 30 bucks on one. Are they really that pricey? Uh, and singles for decent ones, yeah. Hmm. Um, and then the we talked about like a flip dot display, which is a mechanical uh, device. Um, the problem with those is you have to have a large surge current to flip them because it's an electromechanical coil. And I didn't really want to deal with that. So I went back to LEDs, and then I started looking at, you know, driving LEDs with pulse width mod- modulation instead of having them on all on all the time. And so you can cut your current capacity down. And so I was looking at, I, I put some links here in our, our show notes, but um, it's basically driving, how to drive LEDs using like an op amp and an oscillation mode. And so you can get down to like microamps of current for the LED, but you're spiking them with like a milliamp. Hmm. And you you can basically your average current is like I think it was like thirty microamps or something, which I'm like basically you can run a LED off like a coin cell for like two years. You know the the thing about it is like the the human eyeball with persistence what is it? Persistence of vision, like that you can exploit that to your advantage quite a yes. bit like a small little pulse your eye will catch and hang on to it for yeah that's that's the idea behind these um i like how they call this i, I went to this link the 4049 abuser yeah that's one of them um if you scroll past that one there's a better one which uses a uh op amp and that second link is um uses a uh, lmc 7215 op amp and that one is like from three volts, it pulls six microamps. So you can basically run a uh, LED for two years. <laughs> <laughs> now it won't be super bright, but it doesn't need to be super bright. It just needs to be a something that you can see with your eyeballs. And you usually use the color green because your your vision um, has more green cones. That's right. Yeah. Rods are for luminosity. Cones are for colors. Thinking your eyeballs. It, uh, what's what's interesting is yeah. So, actually speaking about that, it takes less green for us to think something is green. Yes. Like if you have you ever seen an image of like color corrected colors for he, for the human eye where they basically take the spectrum and they make it flat. Like everything looks so dull. Like greens are it. There's so oh. little green to make something look green. Well, <laughs> you know? green and blue. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've I've heard plenty of evolutionary like reasons behind that were like green is life and green is like growth and green is food and things so like our eyes were tuned to be able to see that to be able to interesting look at that at the same time like I've heard uh, plenty of um, things about like men and women's ears are tuned to different frequencies to be able to hear the opposite sex which is kind of interesting you know. 
like frequency content that fits within uh, particular ranges. Interesting. So we might hear things differently. Is that why you don't listen to your wife? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I think it's actually an argument as to why, like, her voice is more loud than other people's. <laughs> and I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm saying oh, that man. as in, like, a good way. Uh, yeah, like, that was totally, we had, like, a whole chapter of that in, in I don't can't remember what class I took. There was some like non-engineering class I took in college where we talked about that quite a bit. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna use I'm gonna use a circuit like this. Basically, use an op amp to cycle to do you cycle the LED to get the power down for the LED indicators. Basically, I can run my two LEDs I want. One is a like I'll have like a red, which is like power good. It's running, and uh, then a green that's a time to feed the cat. Right. Um, and that will be well within my power requirements uh, for my device using this setup. And then um, for the timer, I'm going to use a LTC2956, which is a really cool part. Unfortunately, I, we, couldn't use, we can't use the bagel pin part from a couple yeah. weeks ago because it does not have a long enough timer on it. I think it was only like it went up to like 30 minutes or something. But this is a, a timer that uh, goes from 250 milliseconds to 39 days. And that, that's the second bullet point on their features of the first yes. page. I made sure to look at the bullet points this time first yeah. and see if they mentioned 39 the days. Was. That's great. Um, so we, this, will, this is basically a, a wake-up slash watchdog timer circuit for um, low-power devices like in a field application. So, like, if you have, like, a camera or a uh, IoT device that needs to just, like, wake up every hour and then do something and then go back to sleep, you would use one of these. Hmm. So, how does this, uh, how does this chip function? Uh, I haven't read that far into that yet, but apparently <laughs> you, set it, you set it with some external, like, the cycles. You set it with uh, external resistors and then some capacitors. Oh, that's actually really convenient. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, typical application right now. And there's three pins, it looks like. One's called long, one's called range, and one's called period. And somehow, the combination of resistance that you apply to those uh, sets the timing on it. Correct. Which, that's actually kind of convenient. It's I, I really like it whenever... Um, in fact, I was dealing with this earlier this week. Uh, an LED driver chip where you can set the current of all of the leds that this thing drives based off of one resistor that's off of it i know that's kind of common but it's super nice when you get a, a uh, an ic where you get that external combination or you get that external uh what's the right word um configuration based off of resistance that's just mm -hmm. super easy and, and the cool thing with this is it also supports a button impress to reset the timer Oh, that really kills it right there. That just, yeah. So it automatically has a built-in, like, reset functionality that I can use. That's, okay. Yeah, you, you win on this one. Yeah, this is, like, the perfect chip. It is a linear technology chip. Where are you going to find it from? Do they have it? There's, like, a thousand in stock on, like, Mouser. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, I, I definitely immediately checked, can I buy this part? <laughs> You're like, oh, this is LT. <laughs> but no, this part you can still buy. Um... And it's like it's per they instead of calling it the uh, wake up timer with pu push button control IC, they should call it the cat feeder unreminder IC. It's perfect. Yeah. 
Look at that. Okay, so they have some... Linear always has cool stuff like this. This is just a... Not just. This is a timer I Well, see remember, remember, they, they're not linear anymore. It's analog devices. Well, that's true. You're right. It is analog. Uh, but they, they're using this as a switch mode controller. Um, you can set that up. Although, I wouldn't think that it... It doesn't have any feedback, so it'll just run rampant if you just let it go. Uh, so, but I mean, there's, I love these kinds of things where you can uh, look at this and see a ton of different applications on this. Oh yeah, linear and analog are really good at that. They're and awesome maximum. at this. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 super flexible. Um, it has all the features I need. So um, yeah, I'm going to try this chip out. And then okay, so that's the timer. So we got the timer. And we got how we're going to drive the LEDs. Now we need power management. Um, so I'd like the idea of going solar. Because then my runtime is technically infinite, right? Till the sun blows up, I guess, right? <laughs> Four billion years or however long that's going to take. Uh, it's longer than the life of the cat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I'm going to go solar, and then for the temporary, because, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you have to turn the lights off in your house. Uh, so I'm going to go super capacitors. I haven't done the math yet, but I, the napkin thought, I guess napkin math, I did do some math. The napkin math shows that the super capacitors can make it li live for a couple days. Um, I'm going to have to actually do some hard math to see if that's actually true, but... We have a solar pa uh, solar panel, probably those um, those Panasonic BSG uh, series solar panels. Um, you know, what does that stand for? That'd be awesome. The Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> Battlestar Galactica solar panels. <laughs> you know the 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 one problem with supercapacitors, which supercapacitors are awesome, but. You know they're they're great for discharging. You still have to charge them, so the question is like, do you have to have this thing on for a couple of days before you start its? Um, well, I, what I mean by on is like, do you have to like let it charge up and then you can begin operation? Well, no, you hit it with well. So, um, to that you usually have a a, like a fast charge thing. energy harvesting style IC. And so I'm going to be using the AEM 10941, and it's a really cool um, IC that is it's an energy harvesting IC that's designed for solar, and it allows for multiple different kinds of technologies for um, storage, like lithium, um, supercapacitors, bunch of other uh, stuff on there, um, and it also has a built-in LDO. Mm. And so I can run my timer and my my pulse width LEDs off the 3.3 volt LDO it has. Um, and this is actually a very interesting question I came up with uh, when I was researching like energy harvesting ICs is what does energy harvesting mean when you see that on a data sheet? Because it's just, it's a, it's a marketing term. It's a it's a it's an it's SEO thing. Yeah, it's an SEO term that you Google, so stuff that you're looking for shows up. It's what it is. But what does it actually mean? Like, 
devices that have that on them, like integrated circuits that have that terminology for them. If I were to take a guess at that, what I would say is excess energy that is being burned in some other mode can be uh, extracted and utilized in some way via this technology. Pretty, pretty close. So the best thing I came up with, this could be wrong, this is what I came up with, is basically uh, gathering energy from energy sources that are intermittent. Okay. So there's not you're not getting constant. I say constant because we know Re reliable. You're not getting reliable energy. Yeah, not reliable because like when you plug into your wall outlet, sure it's not exactly 110 or 120. It it varies as a percentage, but you're reliably going to get power out of that socket. Yeah, if you stick a fork in there, it's going to hurt. <laughs> Reliably. <laughs> reliably. Yeah, reliably. Uh, so, yeah, the best I could come up with was energy harvesting is from sources that are intermittent or or dirty, I would say, power sources. So they have really good rejection or they can also handle, like, if you took the light switch and flipped it on and off really fast and your dad always yelled at you because you might blow up the light bulbs. <laughs> Which that's not, that's totally not true. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what I remember when I was a kid. <laughs> no, okay, so like uh, that argument was based off of the inrush of of current into a cold yeah. uh, uh, filament in the light bulb. And so if you turn it on and you let it warm up and then you flicker it, like the, there's not a ton of inrush because it's already warm, right? Mm. It, it, you it, Light bulbs get the majority of their stress from when they're going cold to hot. So they actually get the most amount of stress from daily use, not from flickering. So there we go. There you go. You can tell my dad something. Yeah. <laughs> He'd be like, still don't flicker it. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's basically my part list uh, for the cat feeder unreminder, and I'm gonna throw that together in a schematic tomorrow, and maybe we're out of board. We'll see. I like uh, I like how it has kind of evolved in multiple different ways and it's gone like somewhat larger in in scope and smaller but i but really what you've landed on here is a few like purpose-built ic's that have multiple functions that will work together i yes. think that's that's kind of the hallmark of an elegant design it's it's not a cheap design though <laughs> well yeah but again i'm making one it it's it's like oh how much is this LTC chip? Although I, I could, honestly, I could see something like this being on Tindy, you know. Ooh, ooh, ooh! Are these like eight dollar chips or that, something? No, it's not that bad. But that timer is a five five dollar ninety three cent chip. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. So a few weeks ago, we were talking about seven five 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 timers, which those in and of themselves are not particularly cheap, but they're not five dollars expensive. Yeah, but I kind of want to. Do it this way because these are all ICs I've never used before. Yeah, yeah, and it'd be fun to use these things. So, what's your? Uh, are you? So you you're doing okay? You're doing a solar cell into a power management IC that feeds into a supercapacitor, but also has the LDO. So basically, the output of that is chip is the power is the power right? It's what you're looking for. And then that is going into your timer, which also has the reset button stuff. And that is going to feed a low power comparator system that 
uh, illuminates LEDs. Correct. Pretty pretty straightforward. Uh, what I like about that is that that it's linear. Like it, yeah. Like that concept. There's not a lot of parallelism in there. No. Yeah. I think the only parallel thing is the output because I'll have. I might try to find a, a low, a dual low power op amp so I can use one package for it. Well, I was looking at that uh, that example circuit you you showed. It's actually technically a comparator, which you could use an op amp for. But comparators will you can find okay. comparators that have much right. much lower output current. Yeah, you're right. The, you're the right. one thing about this comparator is it has a traditional push pull output as opposed to a open collector, which um, you know you you want to really start losing power and things like that. You could go that route, but. I think what what they were discussing there is pretty low power for a push pull output. <laughs> that that comparator is not cheap either. <laughs> How much is it? <laughs> it's a two dollar forty two cent. <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna be like a forty dollar in singles. Yeah, yeah. Well, look at the uh, LM three three nine. That's a, that's a pretty. Uh, let me go look right now before I put my foot in my mouth how much that costs. Because I use I use the LM339 a lot at work. Um, in fact, we okay, so we have like a really cool project. Um, I don't I can't really uh, talk too much about it. I'm not complaining about the price. I just started looking at it because I'm like I'm gonna build one. It doesn't matter if it's three dollars or a dollar. Well, but but yeah, if you were gonna buy more, like you can get a quad comparator lm339 for 35 cents. cents in singles and then no it's yeah. eight cents <laughs> singles <laughs> where are you seeing eight cents i'm, I'm on mouse or whatever yeah it on but it's, it's cheap you know so yeah. uh, but i i frankly I, I don't normally have to care too much about low power applications so you your special comparator might need that yeah so micro power comparing so yeah i'm going i'm going to try this out um you know okay real quick side note in i don't even remember what class it was it was my either my sophomore year or junior year of college we got into the first like what was called electronics and and it was like less about building like robots that crawled across the floor and more about learning about transistors and op amps and things like that and we learned that op amps could be configured as a comparator and that's where we stopped like in terms of like they said you could do that and then they moved on to the next thing i didn't realize at that point in in life how important comparing is actually in signal processing you know like later on i'm like wow you use that all over the place and thanks for spending half a day on it and being like you can do this let's talk about the next topic you know like that's <laughs> not enough you know a lot of 101 classes are like that though oh i think i think 90 percent of college is that where it's like these are things that can happen and here's the theory behind them now you can go design a spaceship that goes to space right like <laughs> Good luck. Hasn't stopped us yet. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, no. All, what that means is we designed cat feeder on reminders. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. A yeah. super over-engineered but simplistic low-power cat feeder on reminder. It, 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 yeah, right. Because if you just wanted to design a cat feeder on reminder, you could buy an Arduino and have it done in... Oh no! You would buy no that ten dollar egg timer that goes for twelve hours. Well, <laughs> yeah. If you want to go fully mechanical, you could. Okay, with an with a thirty five dollar Arduino, 
and the LED that's on it, you could you could have this done effectively and a push button, you know. It wouldn't be fun though. No, of course not. Well, no, you you wouldn't even need the push button. You would just use the reset on the Arduino. <laughs> you could true. seriously that's plug true. it you into the, use you could the board by itself. Yeah. Use the board by itself. Yeah. And use a cell phone charger to plug into the wall. Mm-hmm. And then you're done. Yep. Yep. But again, not fun. So okay, so five dollars for the cell phone charger, which is so add thirty five dollars for an Arduino and five dollars for the charger. You're at forty bucks, and you said your design is about forty bucks. So there you go. You're 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 <laughs> it's equivalent to an Arduino solution. <laughs> well, mine is forty bucks plus like a hundred hours of engineering time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I the thing is, like, I really, I in fact, I'm sitting at my desk right now, and I'm, I'm pulling open a drawer. I've got, I've got a, uh, what is it, an Arduino Mega? I, I think the Mega. That's is the, the big one. That's the big one, the twenty five sixty two processor or whatever. I think it's it just is. sixty, but yeah, yeah, you got yeah. it. So, like, I love having something like an Arduino available at my fingertips right now because, like, if I have a harebrained idea that I want to try for something, it takes a few seconds to prove it. I think that's where Arduino really excels. Not necessarily for like, hey, I want to make a cat feeder a reminder and I want it to be able such that anyone can make it right now for, you know, really quickly. Like, it's more about like, I've got this idea. Like, how do I do this in five minutes? Well, I open my drawer and I find my Arduino right here. Like, I don't know. (laughs) It's my thoughts. So, um, remember earlier this year, I kind of rebuilt my entire CNC and got it up and running. Um, so it is running and it's doing what it needs to do. But I, I, I've got that itch, you know, that itch for that little bit more accuracy and that little bit more precision because Parker's seen my CNC. It's not made of like space age technology it's made of like stone age technology i was about to say caveman technology <laughs> <laughs> but but no, no here's the thing that's funny is like i so i've i've literally spent god a ton of time on this machine just because like i really there's some nostalgia in this machine for me it's like it is arguably a awful machine it is arguably terrible but there's there's some nostalgia that keeps me coming back to it and being like i love you even though you have a lot of well you built a lot of projects with it i built a ton of projects on this thing and i've built some production on this thing when i was running my company like it's it's functional let's just put it that way like that is that is the one word that describes this. It is purely functional. Uh, and and right now, I am easily able to hold less than 10 thousandths of an inch in one axis and less than 20 thousandths of an inch in the other axis. Uh, first one being X, second one being Y, and then the Z axis, I'm actually holding less than 5 thousandths of an inch consistently on that thing. 10 thousandths of an inch is... Um, fine in my mind 20 makes me a little upset and five is like i'm cool with this so the 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 thing that's funny though is like when it comes down to what i'm cutting with it which is almost entirely wood all of those numbers are okay for the most yeah, part because you're when i do woodworking i know someone out there is gonna be like oh blah, blah, you like if you get if i can get within a 30 seconds of an inch yeah i'm like you're good. You know, and okay, so here's, yeah, I was about to make that exact same point. And I think it's funny, like, 
the 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 most fine resolution from for 99% of woodworkers out there is a 32nd of an inch and the reason why that is it theirs is because that's what their tape measure shows them. well the tape measure shows 16th and then you can go oh, in between well, okay some tape measures show a 32nd you can pull out a, a ruler right so i'm two-thirds i'm within two-thirds of a 32nd right yeah, that's fine so then. i'm way within reason on that and it was funny because like i i got the cnc up and running and i was pissed off at it because i wasn't getting as good of accuracy as i wanted on every axis so i kind of like shelved it for a moment and then like a few weeks ago i was like you know what i this is fine for everything i'm doing i need to stop being such a little crybaby about my CNC. well you were comparing it to your cnc you had at work well there's a difference between two thousand dollars and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars you know like and that's exactly <laughs> the point that i want to get at here like what's funny is the difference between two thousand and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars what that gets you is an extra few thousandths of accuracy like that's what it affords you now i was about to say is those are two orders of magnitude often prices to give you two orders of magnitude better resolution um just about so that actually holds up it, it does hold up and but the funny thing is well okay we're also comparing apples and oranges because i at work i hold about a half a thousandth in uh 6061 aluminum and at home, I'm holding 20,000 in MDF. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about a couple of orders of magnitude. But, but in general, like I, like, I mean, I'm, I'm cutting very different materials. Um, re regardless, w basically the stuff that I work on at home and that, uh, that matter for the CNC, I just build in the fat that works for that, you know? I just know that my accuracy is 20 thousandths of an inch. And the thing is, 99% of the time, it's better than 20 thousandths of an inch. It's just mm -hmm. the worst case I've ever measured is 20 thousandths of an inch, which frankly is not actually that bad in the grand scheme of things, especially because we're talking about wood here. Like, I could cut it perfectly, like, no tolerance whatsoever today and come back a week later and it's swelled by ten thousandths of an inch right like <laughs> like I, i've 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 measured mdf and and plywood where i cut it and then it swelled within minutes you know like well I, it's because you live in houston well right exactly i've, I've measured that so <laughs> in fact we uh we even had um gosh what was the guy's david gunnis on from fulcrum acoustics and we talked about uh, manufacturing with wood and he, oh, yeah. was, he yeah. was basically saying like yeah if you're if you're planning on producing something today you better cut it today like you can't just like cut it and put it on the shelf it's gonna it won't work in a week or two weeks or whatever so when we're talking about you know cutting organic material um, regardless all of this to be said uh, so I, I've been doing a handful of small projects on the CNC to kind of like get my confidence back to being like, yeah, this thing actually works fairly well. So uh, I cut a, what's called a, a, a cradle. Uh, basically, I designed up this... Rotisserie. Ro oh, yeah, a spit, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would call what you built a rotisserie. I think I think that's not a, not a terrible name for it. Yeah. Like, basically, this is a cradle rotisserie that holds 
uh, a chassis for whatever you're designing. Uh, and basically you can like angle audio it however gear. you want and you can like scoot it in or out. And it's for like audio gear, like amplifiers and stuff like that. It works for that, but I mean, it's just, it holds a chassis. I mean, I could, I could have used it for my, um, uh, brew rig box that I made, you know? So oh, yeah, yeah. it's just traditionally you see this in more, um, audio production format. In fact, the funny thing was I was actually designing it to send it off to my buddy, but I, I it looked this, too good well, because of COVID and because of a whole bunch of other stuff. Like I cut this entire thing and I made it. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. And then I took it to UPS actually yesterday and uh, I was like, Hey, I want to ship this to my buddy. And they're like, yeah, it's $190 ground shipping. I was like, what? and I called my buddy. I was like, I guess you're not getting this. <laughs> like, I'm not going to pay $190 to send my friend a couple of pieces of MDF. Right? Yeah. Like, no matter how gorgeous sense. they look. Yeah, right, right. Like, I even, like, engraved logos and stuff in it and stuff. It looks fantastic. Uh, so I, I, I basically, I took all the pieces of MDF that I cut, and I built it into the actual cradle and then sent him pictures. And I was like, <laughs> this is what you would have had if, if UPS wasn't so ridiculous. Um, so, okay. Uh, kind of on a side note, one of the things I was playing around with was Okay, if I if I were to upgrade my CNC, which I'm actually not trying to right now, but if I were, say, uh, what would I? W what are things that could happen? What what are things that could do to close that gap between, say, twenty thousandths of an inch accuracy to half a thousandths of an inch accuracy Ooh. at three inches per second in MDF, yeah. a depth of cut. I don't know. Let's say a quarter of an inch, something like I, that. I remember a long time ago. This is like when we first started, like, like we were not even friends at this point yet. Right. Like, I think you had just started working at Macrofab, and you were talking about going rack and pinion on on your CNC, and that never happened. So this is the next maybe evolution of your CNC. So let's go for it. Yeah, perhaps. The, I really like the rack and pinion idea, by the way. Rack and, okay, so rack and pinion. Okay, and, 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 okay, that, this opens up kind of a weird conversation that or or a deep hole that i've been kind of diving down which is interesting so when you get into hobby level mechanics there's something i've found and maybe you found this too when it comes to like 3d printing and things like that there's like you can search ebay and amazon all day long for thousands and thousands of like these chinese grade parts right so one of the things I've found is there's just Amazon is just littered with ball screws. If if you want if you want linear motion from a rotational motor, you can buy a whole system from Amazon and have general accuracy. I say general as in like I don't know, however much money you want to spend, you can spend at Amazon and get accuracy based off of ball screws, servo motors and whatever. Um and I guess drivers and things like that. So, so I actually ended up buying a, a short 300 millimeter ball screw that if I ever wanted to, I could convert it into a Z axis for my CNC. Cause I'm curious about these Chinese ball screws that you see all over the place. Like if you go to Amazon right now and you type in SFU and then four digits, you can find all kinds of ball screws SFU and then 
the first two digits will be the diameter of the ball screw, and then the second two digits will be its pitch. So like takes SFU1605 would be a 16 diameter uh, ball screw, and then 05 would be 5 millimeter pitch. You'll find tons of stuff. Or say 2010, it'd be 20 diameter, 10 pitch, things like that. They're all over the place. And what's interesting is if you, if you really start digging into it, you look at their they're all they all have the exact same grade in other words they have the same kind of error across length so you don't get to pick their accuracy really you get to pick their pitch and you get to pick the length of things so anywhere from like 100 millimeters up to like 2000 millimeters you get all of these things <clears throat> and if you want to go step outside of like the hobbyist grade like the prices are astronomical like this stuff goes up so fast with these ball screws most of the accuracy grades you see are what's called c7 and c7 is i think i'm getting this right it's two thousandths of an inch every 300 millimeters i think is correct like that's what it will hold so if you travel 600 millimeters you can be sure you're accurate to within four thousandths of an inch uh, that's pretty good it's not it's not bad but in turn but it's like hobby grade because these things go up to like c1 grade which is like point you know it's like a, a tenth uh, it's like a ten thousandth over 300 millimeters as opposed to two thousandths over yeah so okay. like but but every time you go up a grade on these things the price like triples <laughs> you know is that that's it well it's what we said earlier basically you go up a grade it order magnitude gets tacked on oh zero. yeah it's really fast like the money you can spend on this stuff just blows through the roof and and actually one of the reasons why i was even talking or, or looking at paul screws is um we had so I had uh, our yearly maintenance on our big $250,000 CNC at work. Uh, the guy flew in to come and do all the jazz on this thing. Your machine has a butler? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he is expensive. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. He is not cheap. But we figured, we figured, you know, we'll pay for one or two years of the service thing. Actually, you know, uh, side note, like, this guy came in and he was like, this is one of the best machines I've ever seen. And it's only a year old. But it's like, this is this thing is in great condition. What do you do to this? And I, I literally looked at the guy. I was like, I'm, I'm doing the bare minimum. I'm doing exactly what you guys told me to do. And I'm doing nothing more than that. Like, you told me, grease it on these dates. And, like, every Monday, clean, you know, this part and that part. And you know I what? just it, do that. And he's like, oh, he's like, that. oh, nobody ever does that. Exactly. It's like on a quarter million dollar machine, like I'm going to do the regular maintenance that you tell me to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, you understand that. I understand that. Remember, remember when we were trying to get machines to be maintained at at the fab a long time ago? Yeah. And um, this is when we were buying used equipment long time ago at MacFab. And like, so you didn't have plans where someone would fly out to do maintenance on your machine. Oh, right. Yeah. You had to do it yourself. And so we would have maintenance plans for operations to do it. They would never do it. Right, right. I, I remember I remember one time. Why is my machine broken? It's like, have you done the maintenance? And it's like the maintenance sheet's blank. It's like, well, that is why. <laughs> right, right. Dude, I, I remember I remember one time we we were we were out on the manufacturing floor and we're like, man, the reflow oven is really like squeaking a lot. And <laughs> 
and the chain rails that hold the PCBs hadn't been oiled in some time. I don't even know how long it was, but it was like, come yeah, on, guys. That was our, that was the old Bravo. Oh, you're right. That was, and it was, it was, the old Bravo. It, was it was screaming how loud yeah. the chain was. <laughs> the Electrovert, wasn't it? Yeah, Electrovert Bravo forty fifty. I think is what what it was. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. Oh man. <laughs> And it's like, come on, guys! You gotta actually oil this stuff for it to work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think I think our my solution to that was, I because I was the one who was doing all the maintenance documents. Yeah. Is I basically double like doubled how often maintenance had to be performed. So if they missed one, they still on time. <laughs> they still on time, and that actually started to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Man. but now we have Micronics and a Heller and all that stuff, and. Those ha those were all brought new, yeah, and they come with butlers that show up and yeah. and maintain everything for you. <laughs> you know, okay, so and, and that's the thing. Like this guy came in to maintain our CNC, and and I was there for the whole day that he was watch, uh, you know, going over things. He didn't do a whole lot of things outside of what I normally do. Basically, he was there to make sure that what I'm supposed to do is was actually done. Don't get me wrong. He did. He did a handful of things under the under the hood. Like he made sure that the head was in tram and made sure that everything was square. And those are things that I'm not capable of doing. He's there to make sure you're still under warranty. Yep. 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 But I mean, he 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 said he came the previous week from a place that had nine of the machines that I I was running, and none of them were maintained. Zero. Like they'd never been greased. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so boil uh, back this all up. So ball screws, right? You can buy these off of Amazon or eBay, right? So, oh yeah, that's what we're talking about. When this, when this guy had <laughs> my entire CNC at work at uh, stripped apart, it's, it's a cast iron frame with ball screws on it. And these ball screws are the same, you know, they, they look identical to the ones you buy on Amazon. They're quite a bit more expensive, I guarantee you that. But they, they look almost identical. They even have the same end blocks and bearing housings and things like that. So, the, you know, yeah, sure, on the big CNC, they just bought the C1 grade as opposed to the C7 grade. Uh, but Do you but, think they actually build them all and then bin them by how accurate they are in the end? Uh, well, uh, uh, so ball screws are done in two ways. You can either grind them or you can roll them. So if you're grinding them, you're inherently going to get better accuracy uh, from yeah. it. But if you just roll them, you're inherently going to get kind of crappier accuracy. So uh, they, they, they kind of split the line and then bend them that way, you know? Well, all I'm saying is do they actually measure them at the end? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I doubt it. Because then you could bend them. Because you'd be like, okay, this one, actually, the tolerance is lined up. And it, it's a C1. I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to dig further deep deeper into that. Um, that's something that I think you'd have to go to the ball screw manufacturer themselves. Uh, but I bet you that they, they have the phrase, guaranteed by design, or whatnot. You know? I really doubt that they're testing every single one. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Cause, just because it takes so long to do. Oh yeah, uh, but Can I would, you imagine I wouldn't be surprised if somebody like the manufacturer of my CNC at work they install the screws and then they probably test them for yeah. accuracy. Or or if they're grinding them, like the first you know hundred that come off the off the setup are C ones, and then the next thousand are C twos because as you 
as your tooling wears out. Oh yeah, Could be I that, mean, one that seems pretty advanced, but maybe I mean that'd be <laughs> that's some good manufacturing right there if you know your yield to to that those numbers. That I mean, so I don't know. That'd be that. Yeah, you, you, you know your stuff pretty good <laughs> if you're at that point. So I, I would imagine if you're making like a million ball screws like a month, you probably have that down. <laughs> probably, but no, or it could be done in a completely different way. No idea. Well, and and that's just the thing. Like, so every machine I actually walked around to all of our machines at work, they all function on ball screws. Like, there's none of them that are rack and pinion. Uh, none of them that are mag drive, which the the micronic is the micronic is mag drive, which that is super cool. But frankly, I've never seen a um, CNC be mag drive because I don't think it has the actual. I don't think it has the torque to drive a bit. It doesn't have the torque metal, but it has plenty of acceleration to be able to yeah. throw ahead across um, things. Mag drive would be super cool, but that's well beyond um, hobby level. So so I was thinking like okay, so if let's just pretend I had some money to throw at my cnc if i were to slap some ball screws on it would i be able to get better accuracy than i'm already getting and the answer is yes like it's it's difficult because like it, it all depends on how deep you're willing to go with it and and uh so i've been trying to calculate like okay so take a particular diameter ball screw take a servo or a stepper motor that's connected to it drive it at a particular rpm what kind of linear force can you apply on a bit through a material and like this is this is total electrical engineer trying to pretend to be a mechanical engineer right here because it's like <laughs> as soon as you start really looking into the equations on this it's like oh god this is awful this looks so bad like really determining like i don't know moments of inertia on ball screws to be able to determine acceleration rates of a cutting bit through whatever material you're going through like man i for all the mechanical engineers listening like mad props to you guys like this stuff is awesome it's really cool but it's also like oh crap i mean i'm assuming you guys say the same thing about circuits whereas like we can just like talk about cat feeder on reminders like it's not a big deal, right? <laughs> <laughs> Where that's probably black magic to some people. Uh, so so yeah, like one of the, some of the calculations I've done, taking some around six hundred ounce inch stepper motors, driving some ball screws that are ten millimeter pitch. Rough calculations that I've seen, I can apply 300 kilograms of force to my cutting bit, which, like, for MDF, like, think of yourself standing on your router. Think of one and a half of you standing on your router and driving it through MDF. Pretty sure that would cut through it. You know? It would go right through it. It would go right <laughs> through it. So, like, these are the kinds of, like, tricks that I'm playing in my mind because I don't know, like, I don't have a gut feel for, like, what does 300 kilo kilograms worth of force mean to MDF? Well, like, yeah, if there was one it and would a half of go through, through it, it would be fine. It probably would go through it without it spinning. <laughs> Yeah, it'd like, it punch a quarter inch hole. Yeah, right yeah. So, it. <laughs> so okay, cool, great. So I found out that like the torque on my motor is enough for this, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's been uh, it's been interesting. So like, but the tolerance, toler back to tolerances. Would you have better tolerances? Would I have better tolerance? And that's just the thing. Like, okay, so most of the ball screws that you find 
on like Amazon, you're going to find almost all five millimeter pitch tolerance, which five millimeter pitch means if you rotate it one time, you've linearly moved five millimeters. Uh, so that's great and all, but if you want to go quickly, you now have to spin it much faster to actually move linearly fast. Uh, so for the kind of material that I'm looking to cut, speed matters more than, say, accuracy. Uh, because you'll actually lose accuracy if you go too slow. Uh, like MDF and plywood, you want, from everything that I found, if you take your spindle and you rotate it like between 10 and 20,000 RPM, you're looking at feed rates of two to four inches a second. Like, which is pretty fast. Jeez, but that's it's, just ripping. It's ripping. It's ripping. But think about it. If you have 10 millimeters pitch on your ball screw and you want to move something linearly, how many times do you have to rotate it to make it go four inches a second? Well, you're talking about like you're, you're, you're up in the 900 to 1200 RPM on that ball screw. I was about to say it'd be like, what, 12 rotations? It starts to get up there, right. Well, yeah. If, okay, so Time 60. anyone who's ever played with stepper motors might already have their ears like perking up a little bit when they're, they're starting to think like 1200 RPM, that's pretty fast for a stepper motor, right? Uh, and, and I apologize, maybe my math was wrong. Maybe I was thinking about a five millimeter pitch there. Regardless, the, the majority of the calculations that I've started to work out is for things like plywood and MDF. If I'm sitting at somewhere in the 450 to 500 RPM range on a 10 millimeter ball pitch, I can get three inches a second of travel. <laughs> it, like this is where mechanical engineering is so ridiculous. Like you guys have so many derived things <laughs> where like you have to follow this all the way down. Like CNCs are such a exercise in madness it, of Cartesian coordinates where it's like <laughs> at the end of the day, all you're looking for is X, Y, and Z, but you have to, like, but like, to make a move in an X direction, you have to do like 15 things to get that to happen. And they all are like derived from each other. I don't know. Like this has been pretty fun to be honest, but, but regardless. Okay. So take, take a stepper motor that's doing, uh, say like micro stepping 800 pulses per revolution or something of that range on a 10 millimeter ball pitch. If you just, do the math straight out, you'll get something less than a thousandth of an inch worth of accuracy. Now, anyone who's ever played with microstepping knows that like microstepping is, first of all, it's not linear and it's not always accurate. So the, so my rule of thumb when I'm doing microstepping is like, you never actually believe what microstepping is. You, you, you multiply it by a handful of times and just hope that you're better than that. And, and I think that's, that's okay uh, for most applications. So, like, like say if I was at eighth, uh, eighth of a thou micro-stepping and I multiplied by, say, four or something like that, I'm still less than a thou. I'm still okay on my CNC. So the, the, the short answer to all of this is if I, if I get a handful of fairly torquey stepper motors and I do a 10-millimeter ball screw pitch, I can get less than a thou accuracy in general, which is about 20 times better than my 20 thou error right <laughs> so the answer the answer uh, along uh, around is uh yes i can get more accurate if i spend some money on my machine which who knows maybe that's a 2021 kind of thing yep which eventually i would like to be able to 
cut some uh, aluminum on this thing. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So ball screws. Uh, it, technically, the the ball screw was supposed to arrive today. I was hoping to have it in hand so we could play with it on the podcast. But USPS is not always accurate with their uh, delivery dates. So, too bad. Maybe it'll show up tomorrow. It happens. It actually probably just got left on the truck. Probably. It's usually what happens. Cool. So there is one other thing that I just want to mention about uh, something I've been doing that is uh, way off topic, but something really cool. I had a guy. Yeah, just- I was re- I was reading your notes on this. I'm like, ooh, that reminds me of other things. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, maybe we'll have to tie this in somehow. Uh, so uh, randomly last week, it was just some a guy local here in Denver contacted me and he's like, hey, I've got an ARP 2600, which an ARP 2600 is a is a vintage synthesizer. I was about to say Atari 2600? <laughs> you know, same era, basically. And if you looked at the box and everything like that, you'd be like, well, yeah, it looks about that time. It has the, the fake wood on it. So the, the ARP 2600 is sort of like I don't know, the vintage versions of everyone's first synthesizer. In a way, it was... uh, It's legendary in terms of its sound, and it was... Like, libraries used to have ARP 2600s where you could, like, rent time to learn about synthesis. uh, This is cool looking. It's super cool. Here's the thing that's incredible about this unit. You know know what? uh, Sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Yeah, go for it. It looks like those, like, like 501, like, electrical... Uh, educational things you got from like from uh, Radio Shack. Radio Shack. Oh yeah, that's what no, it looks it's, like. It's it's very much that version of synthesis. Uh, like colleges used to have this. Like I said, libraries used to have this. This was like the way you learned synthesis because it was all in one unit. Like you could play it without patching. In other words, you could play it without connecting cables together. It has a built-in amplifier with speakers in it, so you could play it by itself and things. But like the whole idea of signal. Um, routing processing this thing this thing would teach you signal routing and electronics and stuff uh i just looked at what one costs on ebay oh yeah yeah no (laughs) okay so here's the thing that's crazy this guy hits me up on an email last week he's like hey i'm picking up an arp 2600 and uh would you be willing to do some repairs on i'm like what's wrong with it and he's like probably nothing uh but i want you to just go and clean it up and 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 do some stuff make sure when it gets turned on it doesn't it doesn't yeah it doesn't go boom right uh so i was like well what's the history of this thing the guy said the the original owner purchased it played on it for some time and then put it in his closet in 1984 and it has not left that closet until last weekend and that's cool he bought he, he bought this thing from this guy and it is like factory fresh this like so Denver, Colorado. It still smells is, like the smoke that was in that. Oh, radio it's got shack. that old rosin smell to all the solder joints and everything. It is classic. No, get this. It is so dry up here that nothing has rusted. The screws look like the, you bought them from Home Depot right now. Like they they are perfect. This whole thing is flawless, and it almost entirely works. There's like one or two things that is like a little bit off, and it's probably just because like I don't know a solder joint cracked or something like that. I don't know. It's just, or it is literally sat in a closet for thirty right years, uh, and and the guy just gave it to me. It is gorgeous. The keyboard is not like 
discolored from UV light or anything. It's still white yeah. keys, not the like yellow tobacco keys. Um, and the funny thing was like, we got the story from this original owner of like, okay, so what is this? So this guy was kind of a synth nut in, back in the seventies uh, and early eighties. And that wasn't a thing in Denver. That wasn't something that like people were into. So he joined up in a country band, but he played a synthesizer in a country band. And, and they, they played some, they played some original tracks that they recorded. And it's, it, it was synth music. It was straight up synth music, but they just called it country, <laughs> which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> like they had to like sneak it in some way. Uh, so I'm going to take a bunch of pictures of this stuff and post it up in our Slack channel. If you want to come uh, take a look at it. I well, mean, I'm, mainly, I'm, mainly what I've been going through is just looking at like solder joints that have just been kind of crappy and I'm cleaning those up. I'm just lubricating all the pots and things like that it's it's funny because like with a with a repair like this because i've done a bunch of vintage equipment from the 60s and 70s like a lot of times you have to put some elbow grease into them and you got to make them work mm-hmm. this thing is like a joy I, I i don't have to do like i do like the minimum amount of stuff and it's working you know so i am going to replace all the all the capacitors on it because right now it it takes five minutes to turn on you like you turn it on and it like really slowly comes up so i'm not even turning it on right now i'm just going to replace all the caps before that because i know like they're just like they've puked and oh yeah there's, they're dried out yeah they're super dried nope. out so. so this this is what reminded me of this is a barn fine synthesizer oh for sure so th- there's that's a huge thing in the car community is finding barn fine cars and stuff oh yeah my checker is a barn fine yeah it was it was stored away in like the early eighties, um, partially restored, and then someone pulled it out. It was in a barn for thirty one years, and then someone pulled it out, brought it to Houston, and then I bought it. Yeah, you got lucky on that. Yeah, so it's like it, it, it's it's really cool finding stuff like that. That's just was just put away and then forgotten about. Th- this thing looks. There's not an ounce of corrosion on any of the hardware on this thing. Like this thing looks like it came off the factory line and someone just put in a time capsule. I like, yeah. I mean like this is a gem to find for sure. And and an ARP 2600 in this kind of condition, I mean we're talking five digits easy on this yeah. thing. I, I was looking at what they cost on eBay and I'm like immediately closed it out I'm like don't want to think about it. I mean you can you can get close <laughs> to five digits for one that's in crappy shape, you know? Yeah. Uh the, the, the upholstery covering that's on the outside has some wear, and the previous owner put their own, like, they screwed in their own, like, lock into the side so they could, you know, take it to gigs and lock it up. But other than that, it is factory fresh. Uh, so yeah. super, super cool, and it'll be fun. I told the, I told the guy, like, now, now that I'm not doing repairs as often, like I used to be pretty quick at my repairs. I tried to get everything done within a week. I told this guy, I was like, I'm going to hang on to this thing for a handful of weeks and I'm going to have fun with it. He's like, cool. He just, he's not in any <laughs> rush, get done. which is nice. Um, so, so yeah, like I'm, I'm just having this as like a fun side project when I have an extra hour or two here and there, but I'll take some pictures of it cause it is gorgeous. Uh, so yeah. Cool. That was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. <laughs>